As we've been making our way through 1 Corinthians, as we have been for the last number of months now, going through verse by verse, chapter to chapter, we've seen in the last few chapters that we've been in how Paul has been making a case that as believers, there are, are going to be times where we may need to lay down our rights. We may need to lay down our own liberties for the sake of others. And he's been building this case in the last few chapters. We'll see and look at different verses that have highlighted this kind of idea and this attitude to have. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. In verse 13 of chapter 8, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. If meat causes you to stumble, please don't let me know, because I don't want to give up meat myself, but just keep that to yourself. 1 Corinthians 9, Verse 12, second part of the uh, verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So here is what Paul has been building on in the last number of chapters. I bring all that up to say he's leading us somewhere. He's gonna be leading us into some things now that have been going on in the church at Corinth where this has not been applied so well. But again, Paul's motivation in all of this has not been just, you know, compromise just to kind of fit in and do whatever else is doing. It's not been conformity to others. Paul's motivation in saying, I'm gonna lay down my liberty. I'm gonna do things that's not gonna cause others to stumble. His motivation has been what? To see the gospel go forth without hindrance, to not have a stumbling block in front of somebody that might cause somebody to be tripped up to go, oh, you mean Christianity is about this? This is what you can do? Well, I don't know if I, I like that or I agree with that. I don't know if I wanna follow that. It's to see the gospel go forth without hindrance. That's been Paul's motivation in all this. So his whole heart has been, man, I wanna be considering others and not just my own interests or my own selfish needs. I wanna be considering of others. And again, like I said, it leads us into some things that we're gonna be looking at here as we continue on in Corinthians because the church here has not been doing a very good job in living this way. They began to adopt things that were more selfishly driven rather than being driven by love and concern for others. It's gonna lead us into some scripture here this morning that uh, is not particularly fun to have to teach on. It's maybe the one occasion I would wish that we weren't at church teaching through verse by verse, chapter, chapter, because then I could just skip over to chapter 12 and go, I don't know, don't want to do, you guys do 11 at home and we'll just do chapter 12 today. But because we're church that teaches verse by verse, chapter, chapter, which is the way to do it because we want to teach all of God's word, the whole council. We don't want to skip over anything. We want to see everything in context and it's there for a reason. It's important for us. This is the truth. This is God's word and we need to hear it whether we like it or not. And so that's kind of why I've titled this message a feminist nightmare or <laughs> awakening. Uh, I hope it's an awakening for some, an awakening to repentance, but that's what we're gonna be looking at here because we're gonna be looking at kind of the roles of, uh, of men and women and, and, and gender roles, that sort of a thing. Um, and, and it's important we see what the word of God says because the culture and the world wants to push back. They want to alter what the word says. They want to undermine the word of God and say, no, 
We want to make it this way. We want to live that way. And they're going against God's word. It's important to see what does God have for us? Because it's only in living according to God's truth that we're going to find any kind of, uh, of stability, strength, and, and joy in life, isn't it? So we want to get into this here. Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, this verse more aptly fits with what Paul has been saying in chapter 10. Uh, he's been saying how, you know, I want to give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So he says, imitate me, as I also imitate Christ. This is kind of where this verse fits more directly with what he's just been saying at the end of chapter 10. As I want to give no offense, as I want to live uh, to the profit and the building up of others, I want you to imitate me because this is what Christ would have for us. I'm seeking to imitate Christ, so imitate me. Remember when, when the original authors of the Bible were writing these scriptures out, little did they know that these words would be preserved as the living word of God. But when they were, the original authors were writing this, they weren't writing with verse numbers and chapter breaks. This all came much later with copyists, with, with translators, as they began to you know, put these references just for easy reference to be able to find a certain passage much easier. And so they've done a good job with it for the most part, but there's some awkward placement and chapter breaks like this one right here where this verse would more rightly go with chapter 10. But again, this is Paul's heart. This is not Paul, you know, boasting or bragging, thinking, you know, I'm all that, guys. Hey, if you want to know what it looks like to be Christ-like, just look to me. I've got it all together. That's not Paul's attitude. Remember, there were times where he said, man, I'm like, you know, the chief of sinners. I'm the least of the apostles, man. I'm, I'm nobody. He's, he's got a right view of himself, but he's also understanding that his heart and his desire is to live for Jesus, to honor the Lord, to follow him, to the point where he could say to others, if you want to know what it looks like to live for Jesus, to imitate Christ, then just follow my example. How many of us would feel comfortable telling somebody, hey, if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, if you want to know what it means to live like Christ, then just follow my example. How many people would feel comfortable saying that to somebody? Would that be a good thing or would that be a bad thing? And I hope it's a good thing. Now, we all like to deflect. I understand that. We all like to say, oh, no, no, don't look to me, man. I'm just human. I'm flawed, man. I make mistakes. You need to look to Jesus. And I get it. That's true. That's right. I've said that many times. But we should also live our lives in a way where we're saying, man, I'm just living so love for Jesus. I want to honor the Lord in all that I do to the point where I can tell somebody, man, imitate me because my desire is to imitate Christ and to live according to his life and his word and honor him in all these things. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.1 to be imitators of God. That's what we're all called to do to imitate God, to live as that example of Christ to the point where we should say to somebody, hey, you want to know what it looks like? To be Christ's sake, just follow my example. Let that be a, a good thing and not a bad thing in our lives. Paul's able to do that. Paul's stating that here. And then he goes on in verse two to say, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. So Paul's going to be getting into some things for the church here at Corinth that are going to be, you know, some instructional things. There's been some, you know, errors that have kind of been creeping into the church here. Like I said, there's some things that they've not been upholding the way they ought to be. And Paul's going to have to bring some, some correction here. <clears throat> and, and before he gets into 
all of that, what does he do? He wants to encourage them and, and kind of edify them. That's always a good thing to do before you have to bring some tough news to just kind of soften the blow a little bit and, and just bring some encouragement. He says, man, I'm thankful that you are remembering me in all things. They had a concern for Paul. Remember, Paul's not with them in Corinth right now. He's writing this letter to them from, uh, from Ephesus there, and he's wanting to encourage them in these things. But they haven't forgotten him. They haven't moved on from Paul. They're not looking to the next you know, uh, great evangelist out there or, or pastor. They are still concerned, caring for Paul, and he's grateful for that, and he, and he makes that known. But then he also says, I also commend you because you've kept the traditions that I've delivered to you. Now, we hear that, and we go, well, traditions, I mean, are, are traditions a... Uh, a good thing. Uh, we find that sometimes traditions can be a very, you know, sometimes negative thing. It's something that can perhaps get us into ruts uh, and, and cause us to be very stale where we just, you know, go along with something because we say, well, it's just the way we've always done it. Somebody might say, well, why do you do this? Well, I don't know. It's just the way we've always done it. And we just do things for the sake of doing it because it's, it's tradition, right? Tradition can be a very bad thing. Jesus, in fact, in, in Mark chapter seven, verse eight and nine, had to kind of rebuke the religious leaders because they were putting aside the commandments of God to uphold the traditions of men. They were viewing the traditions of men as more important to follow to the extent that they were contradicting or compromising the very commandments of God. Says so you're, you're upholding traditions more than you are the truth of God's word. That wasn't a good thing. But understand, this is not what Paul has in mind. When he talks about the traditions that he's delivered to them, he's talking about the very truth and the very word of God that he's passed on, the very, the very words of, of the apostle Paul that have become scripture for us today. He says, I've passed on the word of God to you and you've upheld these things, you've kept these things and I commend you for it. That's the way it should be. But with that now, as much as they've taken the word that Paul said and they sought to live according to that, they've begun to sort of misapply some things of it. They've begun to kind of abuse some of it and kind of have that, that misunderstanding of it. <clears throat> and they began to, you know, misapply these things to some degree within the church here now. Errors have, have crept in. And Paul's gonna have to address these errors over the next few chapters. And we're gonna get into one of these errors here in, in chapter 11. Primarily, it's dealing with the conduct and the order within the church. See, if there's, again, tying it into the previous chapters and the things we've been looking at, laying down your liberty, if there's any place that we should be more than willing to lay down our liberties, it should be in the public worship service where the focus is always to be on who? Jesus. There you go. It's a good answer to give. If you don't know the answer, just say Jesus and you're 99% of the time going to be right. The focus is always to be on Jesus, isn't it? And, and so often people can come in and go, oh, look at what I can do. Look at what exercise I can or, or gift I can give. And these were the things going on in the church of Corinth to the distraction of the attention and the focus and the worship being on, on Jesus. Paul has to come and correct some of these things that are, are going on in the church. So with that, Paul first... Uh, tackles the issue regarding content order in the church, um, and it was centered around gender roles. We're going to see that in chapter 11. Who says the Bible is irrelevant today? My goodness, this is what we're facing today in the culture so much, and the Word of God has much to say 
about these things. Three things that we're gonna look at regarding God's order is headship. What is the headship that God has put in place? We're gonna look at, at this order uh, stemming right from creation and this order as seen in nature, all right? So headship, creation, and nature. He says in verse three, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. See, if we're going to consider order in the church, we must first establish what God's divine order is for his creation. And Paul lays that out quite well and clearly here, doesn't he, in verse three. He says that the head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, one thing I want us all to really note and understand is that all of us are under authority. There's no absolute authority given to a particular gender or position. Everyone that's part of God's creation must realize that they are under authority. When we read verses that speak of, you know, wives submit to your husbands or that the head of woman is man, it causes some to just go, oh, the Bible is just completely out of touch with, with today, with, uh, you know, reality. It's so old fashioned, it's outdated. Man, I don't want anything to do with this if this is what it's promoting. And there are those that take that kind of attitude about these things. But please understand something. The woman is no second rate citizen here. Though in this culture, the culture that Paul is speaking to, that's the way that the woman was treated, often seen as just a little above a slave. She was seen basically as the property of the husband. They, they didn't enjoy many rights and freedoms. That was the, the state of woman in the context that this is being written, but that's not God's heart. In fact, it's Christianity that's been the greatest liberator of women. You see, a lot of people love to say, oh man, Christianity's done great harm to women. The Bible is such an oppressor of women. No, no, no. You know that when you read verses like, why submit to your husbands? That wouldn't have shocked anybody in that day. They would have read that and go, yeah, absolutely. What would have shocked them was to hear husbands, love your wives as Christ of the church. That would have been shocking to the men in that day. Why submit your husbands? That was commonplace. That was, that was understood. That was a, a given. It was Christianity that began to lift women up to a place that they had not enjoyed before, to a status, to an elevation that they hadn't experienced before. Christianity, Jesus came along and did that. Christianity has not been the oppressor of women. Christianity has been the greatest liberator of women today. Don't try to make the Bible this old-fashioned book to say, oh, it's outdated. No way. This verse that we read here, verse three, is simply establishing God's order. And without order, what do you have? Chaos. chaos. Thank you. It's the one time the answer is not Jesus. That's, you're all like going, he said earlier it's Jesus. Wait a second. Should we say chaos? Okay. It's, you're right. It's chaos. So in order to understand, right, the the relationship and the equality that men and women enjoy, we just need to look to Jesus. In fact, Paul brings it up here in verse three. He says that the head of Christ is God. And you go, wait a second, isn't Christ God? Yes, he is. But within the Trinity, we see a complete equality. 
We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equally God. And yet there's a submission within the Trinity. There's an order within the Trinity, all completely equal, all being God, and yet there is still an order. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit comes in the world to testify of Christ. There's an order and there are our roles in a sense that are given in the Trinity. Jesus said in John chapter four, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish and to finish his work. Philippians two, verse five to seven, great passage, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus knew, oh, I am equal with God. It's not wrong for me to say that, but I'm laying down those rights and I'm coming in likeness of men to, to serve and to submit to the Father. So understand, woman is equal to man, yet there's been a God-given order instituted. We see that within the Trinity. This isn't a hierarchical kind of thing, an oppressive kind of a thing. It's a God-given role meant to bless one another. And we'll see as we move along here that this order was being challenged in the church. We see in verse four here, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now again, it's important to look at at the context and the culture that we're dealing with when Paul was writing this. Because it was very common for women to walk around with their head covered or to have a veil over them. It was so that they would keep their beauty for their husbands alone and show their submission to them. Many places around the world, especially in the Middle East, still observe such customs, don't they? And again, remember in Corinth, was Corinth a good godly city or was it a pagan polluted city? It was a very pagan polluted city. It had in Corinth the, the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty, and fertility. And there at the temple of Aphrodite were a thousand temple prostitutes that would come down in the city at night and make themselves available to the worship of their goddess Aphrodite. And in their worship to the goddess Aphrodite, they would engage in sexual acts with the people of the city. That's what was going on. And these temple prostitutes would be very recognizable. How? They would not have a covering on their head or they'd have their head shaved or hair cut short. They'd be very recognizable just by their appearance. So within the gathering of the church, Paul says, the way that you come and, 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 and your uh, appearance in a sense matters because it's a symbol now of that role and order that God has given. And it's a symbol of authority. Paul interestingly says, if a man prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, or sorry, covered, it dishonors his head. Now that's interesting, you go, how, how would that dishonor your head? Like, what does that mean? He's not talking about a physical head. What's the context that we see in verse three? The head of man is who? Christ. There's the answer, Jesus, right again. The head of man, is Christ. So Paul says, if a man comes in and he's, he's ministering in the body of Christ with his head covered, he's dishonoring his head, who is Jesus. How does that dishonor Jesus? 
because he's reversing the role. He's taking a place that is not his to take. If he's got his head covered, he's taking the position of a woman who's in submission to a man. It's not the way it's supposed to be. He's reversing that role. It would be the equivalent today if I were to come up and teach the word wearing a dress with a purse over my shoulder. You'd all go, that's not right, that's not fitting. That's out of order. There's confusion in that. I know it's a terrible image to have in your head, isn't it? But let's block that out right now. Let's block, some people are losing their coffees right now, but. See, it would be dishonoring to the way that God has designed me to be as a man. I want you to catch something here because when we talk about roles and, and gender, you know, Paul says here, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. People argue today that women, you know, um, shouldn't be exempt from ministry. And they'll look at a verse like this. Here it is, right? Praying and prophesying. And I agree. Women should not be exempt from ministry. But the Bible lays out parameters and guidelines for what that entails. Paul says there every woman who prays or prophesies. So meaning these, there were women that were active in the public worship and in, in ministering within the body of Christ. They weren't excluded from ministry. Some, some would think that men in general are down on women being involved in the church, but there's no precedent for that in the word. In fact, there's many examples of women through the word being active in ministry. But there is, however, one requirement or, or restriction. 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 says, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. That's the restriction right there. That's the primers that the word of God says. Now, when you go, wait, it's like, what? That's, that's, that's taking things too far. Not, they have to be in silence. What does that mean? Well, again, remember that day when they would gather, they'd oftentimes have men sitting on one side, women sitting on the other side, right? In fact, I talked to a man today who grew up in a church that did that. They would have men sitting on one side, women sitting on the other side. So that day they would, they would have this happening. And what would happen is that the woman oftentimes began to be very disruptive in the service. They would, they would miss a point or they would not understand what the, the, the preacher was saying. They'd call out to her, hey, Bob, what's he talking about over there? I can't quite understand that. What does he mean by that? And they'd shut out and Paul's like, guys, just can you be in silence and just maybe follow up at home with your husbands, what's going on there and ask those questions there. But what he does say is, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority. And that is the key there. See, women have great opportunities to minister, but Paul says when a woman is placed in a position of authority, she's usurping the order that God has given, where the head of a woman is the man. The man has to be in that, in that place of, of leadership. That's why I, I believe that, and this might ruffle feathers and offend people, but I, I don't believe that women should be pastors in churches today. Because it's what the Word of God says. Now, I know people go, oh, no, no, Paul didn't mean that when he said it in First Timothy. There was a whole, you know, contextualizing cultural significance to that that, that doesn't apply to today. But, you know, Paul in First Timothy 2 goes right back to creation to state how it was Eve that sinned. It's not stating it on a cultural level. He's stating it on a God-designed order level to say, I don't permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man. Being a pastor of a church, 
would be taking that place of leadership from a man, being in authority over a man. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have great and solid women Bible teachers, and there are many. We have many in the church that have done a phenomenal job in teaching the Bible. They've done it with other women, they've done it on, on perhaps different occasions, but they're not doing it as the role of a pastor, shepherd, who's having that oversight over a church and over other men. There's many places for women to serve, but it's not to be in that position of leadership and authority over a church. And, and teaching the word on a regular basis constitutes that. That's what the word of God says. You might disagree with me on that. You might have an issue with that, but don't take it up with me, take it up with the word of God, because that's just what I see in the word of God. And feel free to come and talk to me afterwards. If you wanna discuss that a little bit more, I'll be happy to do that. But, but it simply is going against God's divine order. And that's something that we've been seeing for the last many decades in a, in a, in a greater fashion. I think from the, the 60s, there's been this kind of you know, bucking against the system, bucking against authority. Not only have we seen that between men and women you know, in, the, in the feminist movement, right? Where it's like, oh no, 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 I'm not gonna live under the, this hierarchy of men. No, we gotta come out, man. We gotta start to you know, be the boss now. We not only see that between men and women, but we've seen that between parents uh, children and, and parents. We've seen it between you know, uh, children and, and teachers. We've seen it between employees and employers, public with police. We've seen this pushback against authority. And it's been a growing trend. And have we seen any good fruit come from it? No, not at all. Nothing good has come in trying to break down the levels of authority. Our society has become more and more tattered and in ruins as a result. But you see, if people would simply follow the word and stop trying to change it to fit the times, then we'd be in a much better situation. Amen. Warren Rearsby says, just as an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority, so society would be in chaos without submission. That's exactly what we've been seeing. Our society is in chaos because of a lack of submission, a lack of respect for God's divine order and authority here. Now again, some woman could have begun to think over these things, but wait a second, I have liberty here, Paul. But yeah, that may be true, but 1 Corinthians 10, 23 says that liberty doesn't always edify. You gotta check that at the door if it's not gonna be for the greater good of one another. And when people come in to the church and they begin to usurp the order that God has given, it throws everything into confusion and chaos. Paul says at the end of verse five, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Speaking of the woman who's beginning to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, dishonors her husband or the, the man in, in, in leadership of, of that assembly. Paul says it would be the same as if her head were shaved. In that day, Again, only a prostitute or a woman in real rebellion would ever have her head shaved. Paul says, listen, when you come with your head uncovered, and you might think, oh, it's no big deal. So I don't have a little doily on my head or something to be a veil or a covering. What's the big deal? Paul says, it, it is a symbol of submission and authority. And it'd be no different if you came with your head shaved. No woman would go, oh, 
I'm going to shave my head today. They'd be going, oh, that's too far. Paul says, it's already too far when you just come in and you begin to minister with your head uncovered. It's, it's the same. Now, so we're not saying you need to start a, a head covering movement here, right? It's not where we're going here. When I, when I taught this um, passage a number of years ago here at, at church, how many people were here when I taught this a uh, number of years ago? Not many of you. There was a few in the first, yes, thank you. And, and there was one lady in our church that got in contact with a bunch of the other women and they said, guys, everybody bring a hat to Sunday, all right, and do it secretly. And so they all had their hats, you know, and I had no idea and I got up to teach and I, I prayed the beginning of the, the message and I opened my eyes and I began to teach and I'm looking, I see a couple of people with hats. And I'm like, oh, good one, well done, nice. And I start looking around and every woman in there like had a hat on. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's like a takeover here. What's going on? I was so rattled. I like, uh, it was such a good prank. That was awesome, I loved it. I was like, I'm in the right church, this is good. So we're not trying to start a head covering movement. It's not an issue of right or wrong, you know. It's not wrong to wear a covering to church, but today it's more so about covering up a bad heresy than it is about being biblical, right? Um, that's kind of what we're seeing here. There are, however, symbols of submission in our modern culture that apply in that really reveal that attitude of submission. When a, a, a woman takes the, the last name of her husband, that's a, a symbol of submission coming under that, you know, kind of authority and headship of the man when they exchange rings and they, they had that wedding ring on. They exchange traditional vows. It's a, a symbol now of coming under that headship. A Christian lady is responsible for the message she sends to her culture. And so is the man for that matter. Paul says in verse six, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. And Paul's using a bit of sarcasm here. I like that. Just need to lighten things up a little bit. It's been a little bit heavy, but what he's saying is right. Even though it's kind of sarcastic, what he's saying is if a woman doesn't want to cover herself and show her submission to her head, just go all the way then and shave your head because it's one and the same. The shame is the same. Again, somebody would go, oh, I never shaved my head because that was really the, the lowest kind of degradation that a, a, a woman could do to shave her head. Everybody knew exactly what that meant. In fact, Jewish law in Numbers chapter five says that if a woman was caught in adultery, they'd be brought before the priest. And if she was declared guilty, she would have her head shaved. So she's walking around the camp now and nobody's looking at her going, man, must have used the wrong shampoo. They're all recognizing, no, this woman's committed adultery. It was a clear symbol that she's gone against God's order here. And so too, Paul says, we all know what it's like to have your head shaved or, or what that symbolizes. So Paul says, hey, if you wanna wear, come to church without a head covering, just why not just go all the way? It's one and the same. It, it means the same thing. It's representing the same thing to the Christian onlooker, onlookers. It gives the same message. So Paul's instructing here on this order that God has given and the headship that's there. Again, all equal, right? No inferiority or superiority between the sexes, all equal, but there's an order that's given that's meant to be a blessing to one another. And then Paul writes now to show how this is something that's been seen right from creation. This isn't a new thing that he's trying to institute. This is seen right from creation. Verse seven, we read this. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, 
but woman is the glory of man. So men, on the other hand, are not to cover their head because to do so would be to cover or veil the glory of God that they are to be representing. See, man was created in the image of God. Man originated from God and he's to reflect him. That's his head. He's to reflect the glory of God. Women, on the other hand, originated from man and is to honor him, her head. That's what Paul says next, look at verse eight. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So Paul goes back to creation to the very beginning to show how this order has always been in place. This has always been the intention of God. There's not a new teaching that Paul's bringing in. This has always been the intention of God. God made all his creation, right? Looked at all his creation, he says, man, this is good. But then he looks at Adam, who's alone. And God says, oh, it is not good that man should be alone. And all the women said amen to that. And so it says there in God's word that there was no suitable helper for Adam, right? Adam's naming all the animals. He sees them all coming, male and female. He's going, man, I'm, I think I'm missing something here. There's no suitable helper for Adam. So again, that speaks of a helper in a way that completes a person. So God puts Adam in a deep sleep and out of his side, he brought Eve. Again, that was done for Adam to be a help meet to Adam. And it's to be this way for every Adam and Eve throughout history. Ladies, understand your joy rests in being your husband's completer and not his competitor. And that's what happens so often in, in marriage is there's a, a budding of the heads for, you know, who's going to rise to that position of, of calling the shots, being the leader, wearing the pants in the family. There's, we see the attack on that. I mean, just watch any kind of sitcom and you see the husband just being represented by some doofus that can't do anything right and the woman has to come in and, and, and take charge and, you know, be the savior of the day. We see this attacked in our society, but God's intended the man to be the leader, to be the, the, the one that's leading the way and the, and the wife to come and be a, a help me to him. I'm so thankful for my wife and, and, the, and the blessing she is. I'll tell you, she does pretty much everything better than I can do. I'm, I'm so thankful for her. She's a blessing to me, but, but yet we understand that there's an order that's been ordained, a biblical authority structure that's been given. And Paul takes us to the beginning even before the fall to show how this order was established even then. Now, a lot of women kind of hear this, they get worried at the thought of their man kind of being in that position of leadership. And they think, what if he just becomes a totalitarian dictator? What if he just begins to act so you know, strongly and I'm just like, ah, freaking out. But that's not what the word teaches. If a husband is doing that, he's not being biblical because what does the Bible say? Again, we said earlier, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, you're not to be the dictator in the home. You're to be a leader and you're to do so as a servant leader. You're to love your wife. You're to cherish your wife. You're to protect your wife. You're to cause her to feel safe and blessed and loved. And you're to lay your life down for your bride. That's what Jesus did. That's the example that Paul gives for husbands to follow. Just as Christ of the church, how did Christ of the church? He died for her. Husbands, you're called to die to yourself and to die for your wife, to live for her and for her blessing. That's what you're called to do. That's the kind of leadership you're to offer in the home. 
where you're sacrificing yourself for the betterment of your wife. That's the kind of leadership manner to bring to the wives. Alan Redpath said, a man who can only rule by stamping his foot had better remain single. But a man who knows how to govern his house by the love of the Lord through sacrificial submission to the Lord is the man who is going to make a perfect husband. The woman who cannot submit to an authority like that had better remain single as well. So true. We see that modeled in Jesus, don't we? He gave himself for us. He came and he was the ultimate authority, but he led with that servant leadership. Washed his disciples' feet. Something that no rabbi or person in authority would ever consider doing. And Jesus modeled that for us. He says, just as I've done to you, you do likewise to one another. That's what Jesus modeled. Complete authority, yet served. That's how it's to be in the home and in that relationship between husbands and wives. This is not about inferiority, superiority. It's about a God-given order. And to make things even more complicated, Paul has to write, verse 10, for this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. It's like, what do angels have to do with us? Why do we, we're, we're going along kind of smoothly. We're running out of time and now we have to bring up angels. Like, what are you doing to me, Paul? Now, what is he getting at? Well, angels are ministering spirits, right? That come alongside to the saints and they're observing what's going on in the church, okay? Ephesians 3, verse nine and 10 says, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That's speaking of angels. See, angels are watching and observing what's going on in the church. Not only are they seeing how God is saving the church by his grace and now using the church and, and, and the angels are watching on, how is it that you're working through a bunch of just bumbling idiots like those humans down there and you're saving them and now you're using them to bring glory? That's amazing. They're watching this intently. The manifold wisdom of God. We're, we've been put on display. In fact, Paul says in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 9 that, We've been made a spectacle, put on display to the world, both angels and to men. So the angels are watching. But not only are they watching to see just the manifold wisdom of God on display, but they're also watching and observing to see that as we come together, there's order. And that God is the one being glorified. They are all about the heavenly worship around the throne. And they're keenly intent on seeing God worshipped and glorified. And nobody getting in the way, distracting, or, or usurping that order that God has given. They've seen chaos, rebellion from other angels that stepped away from that place that God had designed for them. They've seen the chaos that that brought, and they're keenly aware that that's very possible within our own lives. So they're watching. Paul says, simply have a symbol of authority for the sake of the angels. That they're watching and seeing that we are following along with what God has designed for us in our roles and, and, and positions here. It says in verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also came, comes through woman, but all things are from God. So here's the thing, guys, men and women need each other. We're not to work or live independently 
of each other. We're very dependent on each other. It's true that woman came from man in the very beginning. God created Adam, and out of Adam comes woman. But it's also true that without woman, we'd have a pretty big man shortage, wouldn't we? We need one another, right? We're, we're not independent of each other. We are very dependent on one another. And our purpose, again, is to do all to the glory of God. Lastly, Paul appeals to nature as another example of God's order. He says in verse 13, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Paul asked them now, reason among yourselves. Is it proper and good for you to conduct yourself this way? To be involved in the worship service with your head uncovered? To be showing that you're removing yourself from that order that God has intent, from that role that God has given you? Is it right to do that? The obvious answer is, is no. Judge among yourselves. There's enough evidence that Paul has given now to show that that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's a very, very selfish thing, actually. It's a, it's a way of saying, I don't want to follow what God has for me. I want to, I want to be my own boss. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my way, the way that I want to. Now, again, we don't have the same cultural issues of head coverings. Like I said, we're not looking to start a head covering movement. But again, there are, you know, those biblical principles that still remain, that we need to observe, of not stepping into a place that's going to be, you know, distracting, that's going to take away that focus on God, or that's going to put us in a, in a place other than what God has intended us to be, right? Uh, there's areas like, you know, if a, a woman on the worship team comes up one Sunday dressed like J-Lo at the Oscars, there's going to be some problematic issues. There'll be even greater, you know, problems if Justin comes up dressed like J-Lo at the Oscars. <laughs> That's where we're like, man, he's stepping completely away from God's design uh, for him. That's not a good thing, right? So though we're not dealing with just head coverings for a woman, but there are many ways that this can be applied to us today. And then Paul says in verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Throughout the centuries, women typically had longer hair than men. It came naturally to them. Now it's true, some people say, well, didn't Jesus have long hair? Yes, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure based on the paintings that you know, somebody did of Jesus, right? Long hair. But again, that was all relative, right? In that day, it's still shorter than what women would have worn. And women would have had probably much longer hair than we have today. So it's all relative. But in, in, throughout the centuries, women typically had longer hair. They were able to grow their hair very strong and well. Men, see, women have estrogen. God's given them estrogen that causes hair to grow healthy and strong. Men have testosterone, which is keeping us humble because we can't grow our hair as well. In fact, men oftentimes will go bald, right? We can't just grow healthy hair. Like we lose our hair and that doesn't typically happen for women. God's given a natural covering for the woman. This is seen in nature here all through history where women typically had longer hair. And Paul says, it's a glory to her for hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone, lastly, verse 16, seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. See, if anybody wants to be contentious over this, Paul says, there's no need to argue, debate this. 
This is simply what God has laid out. We have no, no custom to argue over this, to debate this, neither do the other churches. They've accepted this as, as gospel truth. This is the way it is. This is what God has ordered and designed for men and women. If the Corinthians have a problem with it, then they have a problem with God's word. Sadly, we see that many today in the world have a real problem with a message like this. Not a comfortable message to give. I'd say that this is rarely a message that's even given in church. A lot of people have a, a, and there's been great pushback against these things to the point where we see in our culture there's indoctrination going on in schools to tell kids you can be whoever you want to be. You don't have to follow God's design. You don't have to follow God's order. You call the shots. And we're seeing the indoctrination of kids. We see it programmed in entertainment. Be careful what your kids are watching because we're seeing more and more TV shows, cartoons, Disney that is, is indoctrinating your kids with an agenda to take them away from what God has purposed for them. Saying, you know, you can alter yourself to be who you want to be. Listen, God makes no mistakes. God's created you and he's created you with purpose. And he's designed you the way he's designed you. And he's, he's placed an order there to be a blessing not only to you, but to one another. And again, it's all stemming from what Paul's been building on, laying down your liberty. It's not about you. It's about edifying and building up one another. And as we you know, move into this school year, I want to encourage you to be praying for our kids, be praying for our, our teachers, because there's a real agenda to uh, attack what God has designed. And nobody's going to find fulfillment in moving away from what God has purposed and what God has said. You're going to be attacked when you stand for the truth. But Jesus said, the world's going to hate you because it hated me. Sadly, there are, 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 are churches and, and Christians that tend to want to just bow a knee and, and cater to culture. But what we need to do is stand upon the truth. Truth, truth is, is divisive, sadly. But we've got the truth right here in God's word. And may we never compromise that. May we never turn away from that. May we never alter that. May we know that this is the only way, standing upon the truth, living out the truth, it's the only way we're going to find joy and peace and contentment. People aren't going to find it in the way that the world is telling them they're going to find it. They're going to find it right here in the Word of God. So may we stand strong upon it, all right? Worship team, would you come up? And uh, let me pray. Let's pray for our schools. With that, um, we're going to have this Thursday night uh, a prayer night for our, our schools and our teachers and our kids. Um, we're going to have... Uh, a couple different pastors here they're going to be sharing and just opening it up to just come and gather together and pray. And you're all invited to come Thursday night here at 7 o'clock. And uh, that's going to be a needed, important thing to do. Let's do that right now. Lord, we just come before you. And, and we do think about how this world and, and our culture has just twisted so many things around. And they've gone so far from what you have designed.
God, you've designed these things with a purpose to be a blessing for us to fit into the, the order and, and position responsibility you have for us to be a blessing not only to us but to one another and yet people want to move away from that. They want to reject it. They want to usurp that and yet there's no peace or blessing that comes from it. There's just further pain and hurt and we pray for those people that are so led astray. I pray that, God, you'd pull them back to you. You'd draw them to you, that, Lord, they would see the error of their way. They'd repent and find life in you. It's only in you that they'll find that. We pray for our school systems. We pray for the agenda uh, of coming in with this message of changing genders, altering our bodies. Lord, I pray that that would be stopped. God, that, that, that teachers that promote that would be convicted, and that they'd see the harm that's being done in that. That kids would wake up and see that there's no good that comes from it. God, it's only in living life for you, your way, that we're gonna truly find blessing and joy and peace. Pray that people would see that. So we pray for protection for our kids in schools, in their homes, in the indoctrination that is all around us, that you protect them. And that there'd be a great turning back to the truth of your word to live it out, God. And we ask this in your name, amen.